Hello and welcome back to The Undoing of Art History. We're Maddie and Teresa and this episode, our last one, will focus on big art history and our concluding thoughts into what makes an effective art history framework. After exploring a range of art history books that look at singular countries or continents, in this episode we have selected two books that approach art history from a larger big history perspective. Mirror of the World by Julian Bell and Exploring Art, a global thematic approach by Margaret Lazeri and Dona Slessier. Through discussion, we will come to a conclusion to whether art history can be studied from a big history perspective or if it leads to the neglect of too many groups. Following this, we will return to Elkin's list. And as stated at the start of episode one, through the use of our analysis, we will try to create an updated list that is better suited to the modern day art history world. So starting with Mirror of the World by Julian Bell, which was published in 2007, it's essentially the same format as Gombrich, namely an attempt of a universal art history in a textbook survey with a chronologically developing narrative. But Bell's chapter division is more tied to the themes that vaguely or closely link the places that he's talking about rather than strictly into time periods and centuries as we've seen in Gombrich's. His approach asks questions such as how do these images, when he refers to cultures, relate to one another? How are they rooted in the experience of others? And what, if anything, do we share with their makers? The preoccupation with communalities and continuity is way more evident in Bell than it is in Gombrich's survey. What sets Bell apart from Gombrich as well is that Mirror of the World provides a more nuanced political background to the developments in art history. He does this country specifically, but also when it comes to matters of European influence in non-Western cultures, including colonialism. This ties in with another aspect of Mirror of the World that I found very charming personally as a history student, because Bell actually addresses historical awareness as a concept. More specifically, he points out that we should refrain from using the notions of progress and innovation over time to make art history look like nothing more than the trajectory towards excellence, because that's really what it's not. Implying that we'll always go towards progress is ahistorical, and it distorts our understanding of the past because it keeps measuring the past by the standards of the present, which do not correspond to the past. This is a relevant point in intersectionality in the humanities. Other disciplines, as we are hopefully demonstrating here, can have a significance on art history. They can add nuance, context, and other information to what we are studying. So here we would argue that a sound understanding of the historical background and circumstances of art provides more meaning to the art itself. Um, yeah, I think this is a kind of nice reflection to make and that really came to us over time because yeah. uh, at the beginning we felt a lot, we felt a bit strange, like a bit foreign in the discipline of art history. And then over time we kind of understood more that even without the same theoretical basis that an art history student might have, we do have a window into art history and it's kind of, coming from our own discipline. And I guess that feeds into not perceiving the disciplines of the humanities as strictly separate things because they can have such a great impact on one another. So to return to the mirror of the world by Julian Bell, what distinguishes the book significantly as well is that Bell is way more explicit in his objectives and he's more concerned with his limitations. He wants to provide an introduction into global art history specifically and disclaims that he will be focusing on breadth rather than depth. 
Expanding on that, Bell says that storytelling of this sort has an inbuilt awkwardness, he says, um, in that it just keeps urging forward in time. And he says this quite charmingly because he says it feels like bulldozing a highway through the homes of the imagination. So even if Bell managed to cover a wide range of artefacts, they can only ever be brief glimpses into their corresponding cultures. A consistent limitation of the format of an art history survey that we should keep in mind for our final evaluation. So moving into a little bit of a discussion, do you think that Bell's Mirror of the World has an authority as a big art history? Well, I guess it's important to point out that there are still a number of drawbacks that persist in Julian Bell's Mirror of the World. Some of them he's very aware of and tries to justify them, but some of them he remains quite oblivious to, judging from his writing in the preface and the introduction. For instance, his focus throughout the survey is on art that confronts us, is what he calls it, rather than art that surrounds us. So he prioritizes monuments, paintings and figurines over architecture, clothes and utensils. So Bell justifies this by his background as a painter and claims awareness of the limitations that this poses for him in his discussion of global art history. But to be honest, given the objectives of his book that he clearly states in the beginning, I personally consider this a major drawback more than an inconvenient limitation. So, I mean, by this I'm referring to the focus on um, art that confronts us rather than art that surrounds us. Yeah, I definitely agree. I mean, I think focusing on it in the sense of, as a painter, it really alienates a large portion of types of art, but it also excludes a large amount of early cultures and, and existing ones to this day, but particularly those who do not focus on paintings, but instead on things such as architecture, if we think back to the Islamic art that we mentioned in last episode, which is very architecturally focused. This also excludes a vast demographic that does produce art, but not in Bell's most classical sense. So if we refer back to Nochlin, Nochlin brings up the question of who gets to decide what constitutes as art. And seemingly in Bell's case, he does. He chooses to exclude a lot of art form, forms that significantly shape the everyday experiences of ordinary people. So yeah, he kind of, by, by limiting his understanding of art, he limits it not only in the production, but also in the consumption, right? Because there are a lot of people that consume clothing and consume architecture in a way um, in their everyday life and he just kind of moves over that by excluding this in his survey. What's partly a result of this omission is how Bell's choices actually play out in his later sections of the book on modern art. It almost seems like at this point he abandons the attempt of a global representation because once we reach the 18th or 19th century non-European cultures increasingly start to disappear from his thematic chapters. So again, this really brings us to the same question that we've already raised in episode one when we talked about Elkins' potential solutions to Eurocentric art history. The question remains, how suitable is the format of an art history textbook or an art history survey in the first place? Is there a way for us to gain a comprehensive, in-depth understanding of global art history through this format? And while Bell does incorporate more or less the criticisms that we've discussed over the past episodes, it still seems like he is fundamentally restricted by the format of this large-scale art history survey and the inherent downsides that are very difficult to overcome. The pessimism that we've voiced here so far has led us to a new approach that shows a bigger breakdown with traditions, and maybe that's what's needed for a big art history framework, and that's what we'll be looking into here. <laughs> 
So moving into the second piece of literature for this episode, we've got Exploring Art, a global thematic approach by Margaret Lazari and Dona Slessier, written in 2002. Lazari and Slessier break down their book into parts, Introduction to Art and Why Do We Make Art? Part one focuses on introducing the reader to art and spans five chapters which outline the human phenomenon. The idea that art is strictly a human phenomenon. This idea is that only human beings make art to better understand life or communicate emotions or ideas to others and its functions, such as art assists us in rituals that promote our spirituality and physical beings. So can this be seen as the most promising approach of an attempt at telling the story of art history. The preface of Exploring Art demonstrates the various new illustrations that have been added to the 2012 edition. In reference to Nochlin, Lazari outlines that this version not only includes imagery that represents non-Western art, but also includes a variety of women artists. For example, there is a new piece on beadwork by Maasai women. Furthermore, as a response to the growing contemporary art scene in China, the book now explores this with use of works by Kai Gao Gang. Following this, the thematic approach is laid out by listing the two core ideas that the book is based upon. Firstly, understanding and appreciating the world's art. And secondly, examining art in the context of human needs within world cultures, which aims to teach readers that the themes of survival and beyond, religion, the state, and the self and society appear in every culture and that art deals with the basics of human concerns. This approach can stress communalities as well as differences in how cultures approach such fundamental concerns. When outlining the perception, response and expression of art, Lazari references the Zen Stone Garden in Kyoto and the Sri Menakshi Amman Temple in Madurai, India, as examples of two different architectural fleets of art that instill a sense of spiritual awareness yet are vastly different. Demonstrating the creator's personal responses to their experiences and understandings of the spiritual world. Lazari here actually combines this inwardness that we've been looking into in episode two in reference with Asian and Islamic art with her broad framework. So she kind of shows us that it's possible to have an in-depth understanding of a number of cultures embedded in a broader narrative. So this essentially requires an equally good understanding of the parties that you're comparing or making connections to, which is crucial. As we go further through the first part of the book, in chapter four, Lazari outlines the various writings about art, in which she outlines the differences between art critics, art historians and academics and curators. Having this introduction to art part before delving into the understanding of why we make art, aids in the reader's understanding as to what the author's definition of art is and helps to bring a base for the reader before progressing into the book. Moving on to part two, why do we make art? It's divided into four sections, survival and beyond, religion, the state, and self and society. Opposed to approaching art in a more traditional manner like perhaps Willett would have done, Lazari is able to create a far more diversified account of art history by breaking down the fundamental aspects that inspire art. The discussion in regards to religion covers humans' responses to God, imagery of deities, and holy beings in architecture. Through doing this, the book is able to cover a far larger amount of art while giving each part of the world equal weight. It's the same in the state when discussing social protests and in self and society when discussing the depiction of the body. 
And this resonates very much with the point that was on James Elkins's list, namely that art history books should put a focus on the societies that produce art, on the relations between the public and the private, rather than center exclusively on things like technique and style. So this suggests that um, such an analysis can give us as much information about a piece of art and help us place it in its societal context beyond just the analysis of things like technique, symbolism and style. So moving into a discussion. While exploring art is able to outline a large base due to its thematic approach, it involved a very large in-depth breakdown of what art is in part one. Should all art history books or art historian scholars be forced to lay this out at the beginning of their research, as Gombrich stated, art history is personal and, uh, and thus each scholar views it differently. I think that it can enhance a survey's potential a lot when we know what the author's understanding of art actually is. So when we talk about Gombrich, I think had he titled his survey the story of Western art, for example, its dimensions would have been a lot clearer and it would have maybe had more authority today because it covers largely what it promises to cover, the story of Western art. But there's a kind of discrepancy between what he promises to cover and what he does cover, you know? So I think it is useful once in a while to really remind ourselves what we are talking about and what the center of the discipline is. So even though we all want to assume that it's obvious that we're all talking about art and that we all have the same understanding, this might not be the case, especially when the discussion has been going on for a while and um, we kind of lose ourselves in what we're talking about. And I think that our analysis of different art history books and surveys has really shown us that clearly we're not all talking about the same thing when we say art and that it's worth going into what art is and what it means for society, but also for us individually and especially for scholars individually when they write works about art. Um, exploring art has been revised in 2005, 2008 and 2012 in order to keep up with the ever-changing world of art. The book makes a point about this in the preface, stating that it has allowed it to include more women and Chinese artists, etc. The question now is, should all art history books be revised on a regular basis in order for them to have an authority in this debate that we're having here? I mean, yes, I think that art history and the humanities on a whole is an ever-changing discipline. Whether this be due to new discoveries or changes in status quo, Scholars within the field should have a moral obligation to uphold their work and ensure it fits within the new contemporary world. A piece that is not revised for an extended period of time, for example, is not instantly redundant due to this, but its authority as a source should be analysed with this idea in mind, and it should always be taken with kind of a pinch of salt when using it for analysis. So in order to avoid this loss of authority that a book holds or a text holds, it should go through constant revisions in order for it to stay woke. So what will remain central to the concept of big history and big art history is a certain dichotomy, because the bigger we make the picture, the bigger the omissions and the risk of oversimplification will be. But this is countered by a risk of isolation and disregard for context when the lens becomes too narrow. So if we balance these two things out, the only meaningful way to tell big art history is to strike this balance between the two problems I've just outlined. So in a sense, to enable both large and small scale analysis and contextualization. I think what's also important to note is the fact that everyone has their own art history. 
but how do we make the choices of what needs to be within a big art history? And a way of answering this, and uh, this is a reminder that it's just one of many ways, is um, kind of using the list that James Elkins has put forward in Stories of Art. Um, we'll, we'll go over it again here briefly, but we just want to remind you as well that we've only, we're only presenting you with a selection of what we considered most relevant for the podcast in this list. So again, Elkins' list has really helped us in the evaluation of the books and articles that we were analyzing so far, and we hope that it can also establish nice criteria for what we envision for a more inclusive art history. So the first point, as a reminder, was to reduce Eurocentricism to acquire a principle of fair representation. Secondly, Elkins mentions the gender question, and he argues that we should privilege female artists with their marginalized or omitted, and that we should speak in a responsible manner about race and minority artists. Thirdly, we need to avoid emphasis on paintings, sculpture and architect and ensure that we are encompassing all parts of art. Fourth, we should focus on the histories of societies, the histories of patronage and the relationships between private and public life, rather than merely the history of style. Fifth, we need to avoid the claim of objectivity, and this is in reference to the default white male perspective. And lastly, we should ensure smoother transitions between chronological sections of the book and also among the descriptions of technique, symbolism, style and social meaning. So, through our research and discussion, we've come to think of a number of other points we think should be included in this list to create a criteria for successful art histories. Firstly, as we've explained with Lazari, is that it can be very useful to specify the term art. So this could happen either in a publication, in a separate publication that specifies the author's understanding of art, but it can also be included in an art history survey, for example, as we've seen with Lazari. This should ideally result in an improved consciousness of what is included and excluded as well. Next, again with reference to what Lazari did, we should outline the uses and motivations of art. So with Lazari, she covers the spirituality and social uses and motivations of producing art, which helps us understand the people behind the art, those who produced it and those who consumed it. Furthermore, it can illuminate power structures that are involved behind the art. Another point we think is important is awareness of one's target audience because we need to know who we are addressing and what their standards of knowledge are to ensure accessibility of our work. The accessibility depends on the content that's put forward as well as the way of transmission or the format of an art history book or of a piece that informs about art history. Next, what's important are timescales and transitions. This is referencing selecting chronological order over the divisions of time as seen in Fenelosa, as this allows for political context to be applied and aids in the comparative approach. If we look at this in terms of our own discipline, we don't study revolution and mix attributes from the French Revolution and the Chinese Revolution. They're independent of one another. Similarities and influence can be found, but they are not analysed in conjunction with one another. With this in mind, why would we look at art in the manner of grouping all oil paintings from one country together when each piece was created in a different time period under different preconditions. So if a comparative approach is used in describing art history, we need to ensure that there is an equal understanding of both culture A and culture B, that there is a sort of equal ground to discuss this comparative approach. 
Additionally, intersectionality, for example, the use of other disciplines to enhance one's understanding of art, for example, as we referenced earlier, the political and historical context that we can add as history students should always be taken into account. This is our updated list for what we think could enhance our understanding of a global art history. Feel free to let us know if you agree or if you're missing anything on this list. We want to remind you again that this discussion about big art history is very much open-ended and can only benefit from discussion and a variety of perspectives. So we welcome any input to this list. So that concludes the end of episode three. And for now, that is our final episode. Um, we really enjoyed doing this. I mean, it was a very different approach for us, tackling it from a podcast, not from a essay which is the typical thing that we do but it was a really fun and creative outlet that we've had throughout this block so yeah this was our venture into art history we hope that you found some interesting things in there and we'll be happy to have feedback or any other input into this again this is an open-ended discussion and we'll be happy to continue it